Only the brave-hearted dare to listen. If a path to the better there be, it begins with a full look at the worst. The disintegration of empire. Shake ourselves awake. Welcome to Post Doom. Regenerative Conversations, exploring overshoot grief, grounding, and gratitude. I'm your host, Michael Dowd. In this conversation, recorded in October of 2019, I speak with Damaris Zayner. Damaris has become one of my most cherished sisters in the ecological Christianity world. Her blog, The Integrity of Life, I highly recommend. In fact, we've titled this conversation, Integrity of Life. And we begin with three previews. Preview one. History has been very important to me. So uh, writers like Joseph Tainter, The Collapse of Complex Societies, mm-hmm. uh, Jared Diamond's book Collapse, uh, and other writers that they have recommended to me through their, their bibliographies have had an impact. And then um, Barbara Tuckman's book called A Distant Mirror. She wrote it in the 70s and was focusing on um, the Middle Ages, during the time of the Hundred Years' War and the coming of the bubonic plague. And the reason she wrote it was she said in the 70s, she faced the idea of the Cold War and that this was the most catastrophic thing that she could imagine. And she asked herself, how have people in other times faced the thought of their own annihilation? Mm -hmm. So being a historian, she went back and looked at what people went through during the time of the bubonic plague, which in some parts of Europe killed up to 75% of a particular town's population. Exactly. So, you know, apocalypse by any definition, certainly. And I thought it was neat that one of the things that she found was that life went on. That even while people were doing crazy things and terrible things were happening, we have records of marriages and sales contracts that were signed. Mm-hmm. We have evidence of daily life continuing. Um, this type of perspective, I think, is helpful to me in the sense that terrible things can happen, but the average person lives daily life, even in the midst of terrible things. Preview two. I think one of the things that helps me the most is is the story of sin, Um, that, that the way we are now is not the way we were made to be that there is a better way to be. It say, that philosophy saves me from fatalism. I also like the Eastern Orthodox perspective. Their, their idea is that the root of all sin, and that would be the greed and pride that has led to climate change, but the root of all sin is a fear of death. And that when, as people, we can come to a sense of peace with our own death, the death of our species, the death of anything, we, have, we are set free from sin to some degree, and we can live a sane life, uh, a life of integrity um, in understanding our own place, our own power, our own lack of power in the universe. Preview three. 
It is more fun to spend time with people, to be closely related to the land, to know your limits and to enjoy life within them and not be hounded on the, the treadmill of modern life. Um, so I like what John Michael Greer says, collapse now and beat the rush yes, <laughs> about exactly. you know, leading a simple life, uh, pulling back our, our impact on climate change. And I don't wanna paint that as suffering and misery. It's gonna be more fun than sitting at the computer, gaining weight and having high blood pressure. The conversation begins. Damaris, I've been looking forward to this ever since encountering your writings, uh, or your recent writings on uh, Internet Monk and on resilience and your integrity of life approach so matches my own religious slash spiritual slash ecological sensibility. For those who aren't familiar with your work, those who have never heard of you, they've never read you, um, help us get you, help us have a sense of what you do, what you're passionate about, and what you're particularly concerned about these days? Well, uh, mostly I've been working on my blog, which is called Integrity of Life, as you mentioned. And the focus there is trying to make sense of a world in which we as human beings don't really seem to fit. And by that, I mean that the advanced industrial Western world, uh, where all of the deepest needs that we have as people for for health, for exercise, for community and communion with others, um, for spiritual growth, for fun, all seem to be interfered with by the way society is set up. Um, so I've been trying to work through those conflicts in my writing. Uh, I write mostly essays, and that's, um, that's been my, my current project for the last year and a half, two years. And, and give us a sense of your professional background and, and a little bit, you know, I mean, I'll ask you more in terms of your story sure. here in, a few minute, in a few minutes, but just uh, help us have a sense of what you do professionally and that sort of thing. Right. Um, I'm an associate professor of English at a community college in Indiana. Uh, I teach mostly writing classes because literature is less in demand at uh, community colleges. I'd like to teach lit, but uh, I love teaching writing. It's a very practical skill where students can see improvement right away. Um, I have written poetry a lot in the past, but uh, in recent years have felt that the essay was what I was most comfortable with. Um, I have worked on three different continents, uh, training teachers and teaching students directly in Africa and Asia, as well as in North America here in the States. Wow, say a little bit more about that. Like that's, that's, that's odd and interesting. Sure, um, I, my first experience teaching overseas was with the Peace Corps. I had been teaching high school in Connecticut for some years and spent a year in a poetry group with somebody who always wrote about India. And he was an English teacher, but I just thought he'd been to India. Then I discovered one day after I'd known him for a year that he was there with the Peace Corps. And I said, Peace Corps wants English teachers? But yes, that was a Sunday afternoon. So Monday, as soon as I got back from work, I called, had an initial interview, and um, within less than a year was in, was in West Africa, where I was assigned to train teachers and produce educational materials. Um, in Asia, I uh, actually met my husband while I, we were both Peace Corps volunteers. After we came back to the States, we still wanted to travel. So we, when I was pregnant with our fourth child, 
we moved to the mountains of Central Asia, to Kyrgyzstan, which at that time was a relatively new country after the breakup of the Soviet Union. Um, we went with a mission agency there, but our uh, work on the ground was to start an educational center for adults teaching English computer uh, gardening and business uh, skills of that sort. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Cool. That's great. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll ask you to flesh out some of that a little bit more in your sure. story. But before we go there, I just wanted to ask you sort of about the language that we've begun, that I'm using for this series, post-Doom. Right. But also, what language do you find yourself using about these interesting, scary, contracting, you know, whatever you want to call it, but how do you speak about our times now and what seems to be unfolding? Well, uh, let me start by saying post-doom. My first reaction when uh, you mentioned that was to think, I don't like the word doom sure. um, because too many people go immediately into an apocalyptic vision. Yeah. And I think the kind of Book of Eli apocalypse, apocalypse is just a way that people avoid responsibility and avoid things that they could be doing to make things better. It's, you know, if it's that bad, then what's the point? I might as well hunker down in my basement. But then when I thought a little bit more about the concept of doom, the word goes back in Old English. Um, its original meaning is judgment. Uh, we have it in the modern word to deem something, you know, to judge something. It's related. So if, if this is after our judgment, after whether you want to see it as God or as the earth um, steps in and, and slaps us upside the head, and says, guess what? You can't keep doing this anymore. Uh, then I'm good with the term post-doom. Um, <laughs> makes sense to me. <laughs> <laughs> that is sweet. Uh, uh, first of all, it's a take that I hadn't heard, but I love that. Um, and I, I think as a preacher, I think I'm likely to run with that a little bit. That's the, Okay, that was, yeah. well, <laughs> feel free. Yes, I think you. the other language that, that um, makes sense to me, uh, pruning, for example, I'm a gardener. Yes. I spend yes. a lot of spend a lot of my time in the garden every year, and I hate to prune. I prefer just vibrant life, and it always makes me feel sorry for plants. But I know it's necessary, and I know I've had to be pruned as an individual and as a species. Every species is kept in check by the balances of nature, and it's time that we had a pruning. Um, but I also see it as opportunity. Uh, that the discontent that I was talking about, that sense that we don't really fit the, our current culture, uh, could be addressed, maybe very painfully, more painfully than it should have had to have been, but could be addressed by the coming contraction, um, by the, the wake-up call, really, that nature is providing us with. Well, I certainly hope so. I mean, if we, if we, if any of us survive this bottleneck, this will be the great chastisement. One of the things I just want to mention, just because I think it's cool, is that you and I both share uh, having a book published by Twenty Third Publications. My first yeah. one back in uh, back in nineteen ninety, titled uh -huh. Earth, "Earth Spirit." So, say say just a little bit about your book. Well, uh, it, it was the ideal circumstance for a writer. I was writing on the blog Internet Monk because it was run by a friend of mine and he invited me to help him out. I really enjoyed it. Uh, and somebody else who was connected with the blog went to work for 23rd Publications, approached me and said, would you like to turn your essays into a book? We'll publish it. <laughs> and I did. And they did. 
So I didn't have to go through the agonizing ego squelching process of trying to convince a publisher to look at my manuscript. Um, and that was, that was very pleasant. Well, that is so great because it's a, it closely parallels my own experience. I had written a little booklet for, um, I was pastoring my first church in Western Massachusetts. I was the pastor of the only church in a town of 1400 people. So I was, mm -hmm. the, I was the town parson in the old New England sense. And I had some very conservative members of my church that were really struggling over some of this ecological kinds of stuff that mm -hmm. I was writing. And so I was inspired by the work of Thomas Berry and, and, uh, and uh, a number of other people as well, but uh, especially Miriam McGillis, Sister Miriam McGillis, who's a real popularizer of Thomas Berry's work. And so I wrote a little booklet, uh, kind of just for members of my congregation and some yeah. others. I self-published it as a, I think I printed up 400 or maybe 500 copies. And, um, uh, and then I sent it out to different re retreat centers. And there was a retreat center up in Canada that was approached by the publishers at, uh, at 23rd Publication. And so this is Ann Lonergan, uh, who had written already a book on Thomas mm -hmm. Berry and said, you know, could, would you be willing to write a book on Thomas Berry, the essence of his thinking, especially building a bridge to traditional Christians? Mm -hmm. And she, she sent them a copy of my, my little booklet and said, talk to this guy. He's already done it. And so they approached me and said, hey, would you be willing to add an appendix and some questions for reflection and discussion and have us have this be a little book? And so I also didn't have to go through the, yeah. the normal process. And they, they kept it in print for like 12 years. It did pretty well. Well, that's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> well, Damaris, I'd like to hear you, uh, as taking as much time as you'd like, just share some of your story. I mean, I, we talked before, so I've already clued into how interesting your story is. But, you know, those of us who were born in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, you know, we had a sense of, uh, there are certain, many of us, not all of us, many of us had an expectation um, that then shifted uh, as we became aware of the large-scale ecological and climatological and other issues. Um, so share your story, how you, how you grew up, what your worldview was like, what your expectations were like, and then how that shifted. Um, and was, was that dramatic? Was it, you know, gradual? Um, anything and everything you'd like to share. This is really the heart of this podcast series is inviting my various guests to share their story um, of how they arrived where they are, especially mm -hmm. around sort of these large scale existential and, you know, sobering kinds of stuff? Well, I grew up overseas. My father was a diplomat with the United States State Department. So I was born in Bangladesh and Asia, it was East Pakistan at the time. I grew up in Germany and Greece and South Africa. Uh, and so in a sense, I never belonged. Anybody you talk to who identifies as a third culture kid understands this. It's not a bad thing. Um, I always enjoyed it. It gave me a perspective. Everything was new and, and exotic. Going back to the United States was wonderful right. and going overseas was wonderful. Um, but I always saw it from the outside. So I don't know that I shared the same expectations that a lot of my contemporaries who were solely raised in the United States had. Sure. Um, the sense of if I work hard and if I get a job, then my future is is settled and I know where I'm going. I didn't have that so much. Um, yeah, and, and I would imagine you didn't have the expectations or assumptions or sort of worldview that your age peers had where you were as well. 
I think that's probably true. Uh, I give my parents a lot of credit for that. Um, they were very thoughtful, challenging people. Uh, my dad also, he was a diplomat, but his real love was birds. So whatever country we lived in, we were out in nature all the time um, under primitive and fun and challenging circumstances. So uh, in that sense also, I may have had a slightly atypical upbringing. Um, so it's been a gradual growth to my current sense of accepting the realities of climate change and what it may mean to the human race. Nothing dramatic, no, no uh, you know, road to Damascus experience with that as far as that goes. But I think, I think it goes back to this sense of discomfort um, that, I've, that I've mentioned. And the first time I was aware of trying to express the feeling that this can't go on, that life isn't right, um, was when I was interviewing for my Peace Corps position. And the interviewer was diligently asking me the same question again and again, because I kept not answering it, along the lines of, what do you expect to get out of this? You know, what do you hope to achieve? What do you hope to accomplish? Uh -huh. And I knew what I felt, but I couldn't express it. And I can express it now, but I didn't then. I, I, then I just kept saying, well, I'll have to see. I want to experience. I'll want to know when I'm done. But what I wanted was to live an integrated life. Right now, what we do is, because of the industrial and modern world that we live in, as I mentioned, everything is disconnected. If I go to work, I am not getting in shape. So if I need to go to get in shape, I need to earn enough money to buy a membership at a gym and take the time to go to a gym when I'm at the gym, I'm not hanging out with my family. I'm not gardening. I'm not, all of these things are disconnected and in conflict. So I did enjoy the two years that I spent in very primitive circumstances in West Africa, where my exercise and my shopping were the same thing. I was carrying it home on my head, which my neighbors thought was very funny. Um, where my work was with people. I walked there through dusty roads to get to the, the building where I worked and and everything seemed more real. My daily activities seemed really to have to do with life and survival. So when I came back, uh, I was able to stay at home with my kids for quite a few years and think through, you know, how do I wanna live? How should our world be? So I kind of approached this idea of, of simple living, of local rootedness, um, without having really thought about or understood the issues of climate change until some years later. Mm -hmm. I think the, the writer who put it in perspective for me was John Michael Greer, who writes a lot about peak oil post-industrial climate change issues. And that made a lot of sense to me. And it all began to tie together that climate change was the consequence of this very out of sync life that we were leading but perhaps also the salvation, if not from the human race's point of view, at least from the planet's point of view, <laughs> yes. the necessary corrective and the balance. As I said, there was no one moment of waking up and thinking, oh my gosh, this is what it all means. I also, Connie and I, one of mm -hmm. our absolute favorite authors in the world is John Michael Greer. I think I've mm -hmm. read 14 of his books in the last seven years. Yeah. Who, who are some of the authors that have been, or, or contributions to you, who have been the people who have played a mentor or just a collegial role, but they've helped you, they've helped formulate your worldview around these sorts of things. Any other 
uh, influences that you care to mention? Um, other influences, uh, Wendell Berry, of course, a lot of people know. Uh, when I was overseas in Kyrgyzstan and sometimes missing the United States, somebody sent me a book. It was a Reader's Digest book called Back to Basics, where every two-page spread had some kind of skill, whether it was skinning a rabbit or building with stone or something like that. And I loved that. I just, I dreamed over that when I was homesick and annoyed. <laughs> um, but then also history has been very important to me. So uh, writers like uh, Joseph Tainter, The Collapse of Complex Societies, mm -hmm. uh, Jared Diamond's book Collapse, uh, and other writers that they have recommended to me through their, their bibliographies, have had an impact. And then um, Barbara Tuckman's book called A Distant Mirror was written, she wrote it in the 70s and was focusing on um, the Middle Ages during the time of the Hundred Years War and the coming of the bubonic plague. And the reason she wrote it was she said in the 70s, she faced the idea of the Cold War and that this was the most catastrophic thing that she could imagine. And she asked herself, how have people in other times faced the thought of their own annihilation. Mm -hmm. So being a historian, she went back and looked at what people went through during the time of the bubonic plague, which in some parts of Europe killed up to 75% of a particular town's population. Exactly. So, you know, apocalypse by any definition, certainly. And I thought it was neat that one of the things that she found was that life went on, that even while people were doing crazy things and terrible things were happening. We have records of marriages and sales contracts that were signed. Mm -hmm. We have evidence of daily life continuing. Um, this type of perspective, I think, is helpful to me in the sense that terrible things can happen, but the average person lives daily life, even in the midst of terrible things. Um, so those yeah. are some of the influences that have impacted me. Yeah, no, exactly. I'm reminded of the quote um, toward the end of the, the Dark Mountain Manifesto that Dugald Hein and uh, Paul Kingsnorth uh, wrote mm -hmm. uh, 10 years ago now, I guess. Um, but, uh, you know, the end of the world as we know it is not the end of the world full stop. Right, right. Uh, uh -huh. and she documents and, that really well. Yeah, and, and I, I like people. I like being a person. I think God likes people, you know, <laughs> but I've never had the idea that we are the only species in the universe, yeah. that the universe exists solely for us. It was here for a long time before we were around. It'll be along, it, around for a long time after we're gone. And that's not a bad thing. That's a thing that gives me hope. Um, it limits our power. Mm -hmm. um, and when I get really, really mad at people, it helps me to, people as a whole, you know. <laughs> right, right. It helps me to, uh, to come to terms with the fact that, that we're not everything, that there is a purpose larger than just us. I, I hate the philosophical question that, that the typical adolescent philosopher always wants to start with. If a tree falls in the forest and no one hears it, does it make a sound? Yes, it makes a sound. Of course it makes a sound. It's not my ear that determines the reality of the universe. When I'm gone, when we're all gone, there will still be a pretty interesting universe left. Amen. I mean, well, I remember hearing years ago, somebody saying, well, God loves his plagues too. Don't forget yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, actually, 
normally I sort of been asking a question about human nature at this point, but I'd like to ask you a little bit more about sort of the big picture. Like how has, what cosmological or theological perspective or perspectives have you found nourishing or helpful or supportive um, in terms of your coming to terms with and staying active in some really inspiring ways in the face of some really challenging, scary stuff? Yeah. My belief tradition is Christianity. I am comfortable and happy with the idea of life after death. But I think if what happens at death is simply a ceasing to exist, that is peaceful as well. Um, I think one of the things that helps me the most is is the story of sin. Um, that, that the way we are now is not the way we were made to be. That there is a better way to be. It say, that philosophy saves me from fatalism. I also like the Eastern Orthodox perspective. Their, their idea is that the root of all sin, and that would be the greed and pride that has led to climate change, but the root of all sin is a fear of death. And that when, as people, we can come to a sense of peace with our own death, the death of our species, the death of anything, we, have, we are set free from sin to some degree. And we can live a sane life, uh, a life of integrity um, in understanding our own place, our own power, our own lack of power in the universe. So I think those are two philosophical and religious concepts that uh, underlie a lot of what I think about. Yeah, well, that's great. And in fact, it matches so much of my, my own work recently in recent years, but even in recent months, is to, to attempt to articulate uh, in a way that reflects collective intelligence, not just Michael Dowd's head, but mm -hmm. other, co other colleagues that are within this movement, how to frame or interpret the core elements of, of my faith tradition, which is also Christianity. I've pastored three churches over the course of a decade from the mid 80s to mid 90s. But how to interpret or frame the, the essence of, of the sort of the Christian gospel, the Christian worldview in ways that are really inescapably real and point to deep truths that we just know from experience and can articulate in some cases also in very secular language and very non mm -hmm. non otherworldly uh, or supernatural language and the idea of uh, the root of all sin being uh, rooted in fear of death just makes an awful lot of sense to me in terms of my own sense of 10 years ago i was in the same room that i'm speaking to you now i went through mm -hmm. cancer experiencing my own mortality and the fact that i could die in the next eight months Mm -hmm. And then just ending up in this place of incredible gratitude for having lived 50 years at that time, I'm now 60, but having lived 50 years and I was just filled with gratitude for the, for the life I've been able to live and my kids and my legacy, you know, just all the different things. And then also, so gratitude for the past and a profound trust in the future, including trusting that I could die in the next eight months. Right. Um, and life would continue. And that, that sense of gratitude for the past and trust from the, in the future was profoundly wedded to the evaporating of fear. And of course, I, a fear of death. Mm -hmm. And of course, I interpreted that also in theological, uh, sort of mythic theological language, just because I love to do that. So um, I'm, I'm grateful for you reminding me of the, uh, the orthodox uh, perspective on that. I think I'm going to explore that a little bit more. Sure. Uh, uh -huh. Demers, I wanted to ask you to say a little bit about the title of your blog and what you're doing there. 
I'm curious, what does that mean for you and, and what is it that you're exploring in your blog? I got the phrase from a prayer in part of the liturgical cycle of the church that I attend. And I don't remember the entire context, but it hit me as I was listening. And I thought, yep, that's the word that I want. And the word integrity, we use it in two different ways. One is the more common usage of acting honorably, telling the truth, being who you seem to be, all of those things, acting with integrity. But it also is related to integral and integrated, where all the parts fit together and, and work in harmony with one another. So it expressed very much what I wanted to, to explore in the course of my writing. In fact, um, the first thought I had was to call the blog Sane Living, but I looked it up, at just you know, Googled it to see what was out there, and it is, that is the name of uh, some rather plush retreat center in, in California. And I thought, no, I'm going <laughs> to go with integrity of life. Because uh, that, you know, as I said, that's what I'm trying to work out. How, does, how do all the, the parts of life that right now are grinding and banging against each other get back into line so everything runs smoothly? Yes, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. My own sort of sense of that is that once, well, to say the same thing in mythic and secular language, once we cast ourselves out of the garden, that is once we dishonored the, the grace limits of the living mm -hmm. world and put ourselves on a human-centered trajectory, trajectory rather than life-centered, God-centered perspective, I think we really do put ourselves on a path that we end up here and that only by, this is my interpretation, mm -hmm. only, only by making the future our Lord, that is only by relating to the future as a divine person and making that our top priority in terms of how to live in the present. It's sort of a Western Christian way into sort of acting with the seventh generation in mind. I think unless we do that, we will continue to allow our instincts, uh, which are now mismatched for the kind of conditions we now live in. They served us, right. uh, you know, up until agriculture. So it's interesting. I find myself um, not only aligning with your sense of integrity of life. I mean, I, I use a creed that I've actually co-developed with a bunch of others over the course of the last, I guess, eight or nine years now. Reality is my God. Evidence is my scripture. The epic of evolution is my creation story. Ecology is my theology. Integrity is my spiritual path. And what I mean by integrity are the practices and exercises that help me live in right relationship to reality. So reality is my God. Evidence is my scripture. Big history or the epic of evolution is my creation story. Ecology is my theology. Integrity is my spiritual path. And accountability to the future is my mission. Yeah, I, I appreciate your focus on the future. I think the average person probably would find that harder than you. And I don't want to speak for the average person. Everybody's different. But mostly we live daily. Nonetheless, what, what a good culture would do is to set up our daily lives with the future in mind. So whether we're thinking about it or not, whether we're aiming for something specific or not, we are living in such a way that the future that there is something in the future for our children, grandchildren, and, and for everything, all life on earth. And if, if I were to choose um, a single Bible verse that I think works both spiritually and practically to every audience, it's uh, Micah 6, 8, 
which is love justice, do mercy, and walk humbly with your God. And I really think that that covers it, whether we're talking about how we handle the environment and other species, how we deal with the economy, how we deal with other people, and how we prepare for the future. If we're living humbly now, we won't use up what other people will need in the future. If we're thinking of justice and mercy, uh, we will be considering the whole world around us. Um, in, and, and then that, if we're doing that, that goes back to what you were talking about, which is the sense of gratitude. When we're not front and center grabbing and, and shoving out of fear, then we can just sit back and go, this is a nice world. We like it here. Let's stay. <laughs> You know. Yeah, that, I mean, what you just said was struck me as rather profound uh, and, and, and sort of obviously true, but many people don't, certainly I don't think about it often, which is that we are embedded in systems mm-hmm. and that if the, if the economic, political, governmental, and cultural systems in which we are embedded make it easy or inevitable to harm the future, then it's pretty difficult for us not to do that seems to me sustainable cultures, healthy cultures, pro-future cultures, make it, make it almost inevitable, make it easy to do things that are pro-future because the whole culture is structured that right. way. Right. Whereas we have an economic system and political and cultural systems that don't do that. So the fact, you know, getting a lot of individuals to do the right thing is different than if your systems make it easy to do that. Yeah, yeah. And I've written about that quite a bit. Some of it's on my blog now and some will be coming up later. But yeah, it, it, is, um, it is a challenge. Um, one of the pieces I wrote has the title, The Neurosis of the Lone Revolutionary. And that's exactly it. The sense of, of swimming upstream ineffectually because the power of the water going downstream is so much greater than any individual can manage. So you asked earlier, how do I feel about the upcoming contraction, change, pruning, doom, whatever it might be. Um, I almost feel as if I almost welcome it. That seems terrible, and I'm probably not a very good person, but I almost (laughs) welcome it because I don't see any other means by which it's going to happen. And I sure wish there were. I wish as a species, and maybe we will. I, I don't want to give up hope. But if we could, as a species, re-examine ourselves and change our path, that would be wonderful. Um, but the, the image that I think of is that nature is getting all of her elements together for a confrontation, for what do you call it when uh, you're, you sit down with somebody who's drinking too much and you... Oh, uh, an intervention. intervention. Yes. So nature is preparing an intervention uh, for humankind and is saying, look at all this evidence, look at what you've done. And now it's time to change your addictions, to get off these bad habits that you've developed, your addiction to fossil fuel, to the growth mindset, to wealth and imperialism. And once you do and work yourself through the steps, you'll be a happier and healthier person. I'm so grateful that you just articulated it exactly like that because literally an hour and a half ago, I've been, I was thinking along the lines of addiction and thinking about okay. you know, people, people who think that we can easily sort of uh, uh, get millions and millions and maybe billions of people to sort of like get around a particularly important thing that if we just do that, then we can, Right. save humanity or whatever, uh, or at least uh, forestall the worst uh, effects. Mm-hmm. 
And I likened it just a couple hours ago to, to an addict. It's like, how many of you, what I imagine saying to an audience is, how many of you have had the, the challenge or the opportunity or both of uh, confronting or you know, dealing mm -hmm. with somebody who's profoundly addicted to alcohol or something else? It's not easy. And often, usually, almost always, it requires that person to hit bottom in some way, right. have something right. get so bad. And I think that's, you know, we are all addicted to consumerism, to oil, to en mm -hmm. cheap energy, to technology, you know, blah, blah, blah. And um, without hitting bottom, I don't think any of us or not most of us are not going to be willing to recover. We're not going to right. see what right. there is to repent from yeah. uh, until we experience the consequences. So the yeah. fact that you just articulated what I've been ruminating on this morning was really quite cool. Well, and, and I have hope that at least some people are seeing things a little bit more clearly. I work with my college students. In many cases, the subjects that they write about or that we talk about in class will end up on these big social issues. Eight years ago, to pick a number, uh, I would say the majority of my students would, climate change just wasn't even in their radar. Right, and um, the, the concept of peak oil, running out of fossil fuels. I, I had one student, when I, I asked the question, what do you think, uh, are we gonna run out of fossil fuels? After we had looked at some evidence and he just snorted in disgust and said, well, that's ridiculous. There's no way gonna run out of fossil fuels. I've gotta get to work. <laughs> <laughs> but my most recent classes have, yes. have shrunk back from that arrogance a little bit. They don't know what to do but um, they accept that something has to be done and they do believe more and more in the reality of this, this um, out of balance system that we're part of. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, having lived on the road for 18 years, traveling the continent, speaking in churches and colleges and stuff, I, I agree there's been a real shift over the last five to 10 years. In a Trump era, many progressives and liberals have been forced to rethink their adopting the myth of perpetual progress. There, there's right, this, right. It's a real, it's been a culture shock for many people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And of course, this is why one of the things I like about John Michael Greer is that he constantly brings in Toynbee and Spengler and Vico and other right. historians right. that have shown that we're pretty much right on schedule. This is the way empires and civilizations contract and collapse. Sure, sure. Yeah, the ecological overreach and we do an exercise on Easter Island with my students, and I do kind of make the point, this is the planet in small. Yes. So if you use up all the trees, there aren't any other trees. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, well, Demis, this is fabulous. I'd like to now go back to what I was going to ask you about before mm -hmm. in terms of human nature. Like, how do you see, uh, you know, what's your sense of our inborn strengths and limitations um, that sort of uh, influence your interpretation of societal deterioration or cultural sort of decline or whatever? Like, how do you, how do you see the human nature piece of this puzzle? Sure. Um, I think one of the things that distinguishes us, probably the most obvious thing that distinguishes us from other species, is language and the ability to tell stories. The sense of being able to step outside of ourselves and create a different reality or retain a history and pass it on to the future and so on. Um, so that's pretty essential. I think we are also a communal species 
if we were meant to be individualists, we would look a lot different from skinny, naked things with small teeth and no claws. <laughs> um, so our strength is in our, our communities and our communication. Uh, every modern image of the human being as a computer, as a pile of chemicals, as a machine, is a distortion of that communal strength and that um, inner life that all of us really do have. And I am afraid that these things get ground out of people in today's society. I mean, there are many other elements too, but those are the two that come to mind right at the top because I mm -hmm. think those are the ones that we're most messed up about. So, um, well, I, I heard a story on NPR um, a week or two ago talking about um, a retirement community that an old lady was being interviewed at. She had moved there from the Midwest to Los Angeles mm -hmm. and talked about the difficulties there. She'd moved, she, we were told, because her daughter wanted her mother to be near her, and that's lovely. But she lived in this retirement community and told the interviewer, I have to go to the food bank every week because I can't afford to buy food. And my first thought is, where's your daughter? Yeah. You know, what are our relationships with each other? And I don't want to blame any individual. People are hard to get along with. And, and sometimes, it, you know, it's just not possible. But as a society, as a whole, what are our connections? We, I think we try to make do with money. Uh, I will pay you for all the services that I ought to be integrated with you for. You know, um, I'll give you money, then you go away. And I'm all alone and I'm the worst. I, I'm an introvert. I'm perfectly happy sitting alone. Um, I've had the thought even as a missionary that boy, this would be a nice country if the people would just go away and then you know, <laughs> was ashamed of having that thought. But I know I'm wrong in that. Uh, and my children have been one of the ways that I've seen how wrong I am and bless them, they're wonderful people. Um, so there's that, and then there's the refusal of the imagination, of the story. Um, and by story, I don't just mean literature. That's philosophy, it's the crea creative aspect of science, it's history, mm -hmm. um, it's medicine, all of those things. But as soon as it becomes a grind, becomes a job, becomes, uh, you know, you're a cog in a larger machine, you've got a schedule, you've got money to earn, um, you lose that element of the human soul. And then there's no sense of past or future. There's no sense of the beauty of here and now. It's just a grind. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, wow, that's great. Um, I'm curious, going back to what you said before um, about you know being, being fearless or having no fear of death, um, I'm curious, how do you think of hold impermanence, mortality, death, both in a secular sense, but also for mm -hmm. yourself in a religious sense? Yeah, as I said, um, I anticipate life after death. So I think about it from time to time, don't dwell on it greatly. Um, I anticipate some form of judgment and it is not for humankind to know what that judgment consists of or who gets through or who doesn't, if anybody doesn't. Um, but I think that just gives me a, a sense of peace, uh, that that's something I don't need to worry about right now, that when mm -hmm. I face injustice and, and horror and so on, um, that it's not only me who has to fix the world, and it's not only now that it has to be fixed. Mm -hmm. 
Um, as far as impermanence goes, it's, it's the way of things. It, uh, that doesn't bother me at all. Uh, the death of the dinosaurs made room for the people, and the death of the people will make room for something else. Uh, it, it, is, it is the way of nature, and it is the way of history. As I mentioned with the example from Barbara Tuckman's book about the bubonic plague, though, it's nice to remember that it's usually contraction. There are occasions of complete extinction, mm -hmm. but often it's contraction um, and just finding a new niche and being able to adapt to a new normal. And that is really more what I anticipate. I know it's certainly within the realm of possibility that our species would go extinct in the near future in the next few mm -hmm. centuries or something. But I don't imagine that that's going to happen. I think there will be fewer of us. I think we'll live very differently. But I think we will, as part of that contraction, hopefully regain our community and our stories, um, our creativity outside of the ravenous beast that is modern society. So yeah. impermanence is a is a fact so there's no point in having any feelings about it but as far as i do it's probably a blessing and it's certainly something that can be worked with yeah 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 that's my sense as well and and most of the people involved in this in this series is just the recognition of the the nature of nature the way of life mm -hmm. the you know, whether you use secular or religious language for that there's a accepting what's so in terms of how things have unfolded for millions and millions of years and being right. at peace with that and and then aligning what we do with that is mm -hmm. sort of just just wise i had a thought just yesterday i haven't shared this with anybody other than connie my wife um it was sort of thinking uh drawing on william catton's distinction in his book overshoot okay mm -hmm. uh, connie yeah. and i both consider uh, the most important book we've ever read he talks about the distinction between Homo Colossus and Homo sapiens. And that okay. Homo sapiens are humans as we've lived for most of human history. Homo Colossus are industrial humans where each yeah. of us uses 20 to 50 times the resources and exudes 20 to 50 times the waste. And that the extinction of Homo Colossus can safely be said is inevitable. That may or may not mean the extinction of Homo sapiens. Sure. Mm -hmm. But I did have a thought yesterday and I just wanted to throw it out to you because it was a fun way of languaging it. Not fun, but just like it seemed to me to be pretty profound, which is that industrial humanity has a terminal disease. And the name of that disease is more. I am totally on board with that. That, you know, that, that, that sense yeah. of that almost addiction to more, uh, right. uh, more energy, more stuff, more stimulation, more mm -hmm. whatever. Um, and, and which is the exact opposite of honoring limits. Right. Honor, you know, that, that, that sort of sacred principle of enoughness, of sufficiency. Yes. Right. I, I think that in a literary sense, that was probably portrayed most beautifully to me in C.S. Lewis's book, Paralandra, which is the second of his three books in his science fiction trilogy. And he talks, of, it takes place on, on another planet, which hasn't yet fallen. The first man and the first woman are still there. A human being gets there and is put in the position of thinking, you know, what if I'm the one who's supposed to make it not happen, make the fall not happen here? But one of the things that this human being has to realize, he's in paradise. Fruit falls from the trees. It's just incredibly beautiful. He reaches to take a second fruit and he thinks, do I need it? 
you know, on earth, I would have taken it. In fact, I would have built a storehouse and kept them there. And then I would have acquired money and arms to protect them. But if I am living in paradise and if I'm living in trust, I take the fruit I need and then I go on and maybe I'll never see that fruit again, but there'll be something else good. Um, that whole science fiction trilogy is just brilliant, I think, as far as human nature and the world. Uh, but it's very thought-provoking. Yeah. Yeah, and I, in fact, I'm probably going to go back and reread that now as a result of this conversation. Yeah, yeah, do. It's been a few wonderful. decades. Uh-huh. Cool. Well, um, last two questions relate to gifts and sort of remaining opportunities. And I'm curious, when you think about or discuss or teach these challenging issues, in the, in the face of the cascading problems of overshoot, uh, resource depletion, climate chaos, and so forth, what has opened up for you on the other side of acceptance? I mean, surely all of us, most of us, have had some grieving and some depression and some anxiety and all that. Sure. Mm -hmm. But Paul Traferka talks about uh, finding the gift on the other side of acceptance. I'm just curious for you, what has been the gift or what are, what are some things that have opened up for you on the other side of, of merely acceptance? I think what's most important to me, just from my personality, is that truth exist not that i know it or that i have it or that i win or anything like that so even if humankind were to go extinct if the balance is achieved if our harm is limited if um, nature survives that's a gift to me i would like to be there to see it i would like my grandchildren to be there to see it but nonetheless i i want I want this craziness to stop. So uh, by whatever means, it will, be, it will be a good thing when it has stopped. Um, I think also there is the gift of challenge. We think of happiness nowadays in modern Western culture as having stuff, as luxury, as comfort. And yet our suicide rates are exponentially higher than the suicide rates of people in third world countries who may be facing war and starvation and every day want to get up and go on living. So I don't think comfort, luxury, security are really what we're made for. And I think that there is a level of heroism and happiness even that arises in difficult circumstances. Nobody wants to be shot at, nobody wants to starve to death, and I hope nobody does. But nonetheless, we are more truly who we are in those moments than we are sitting on the couch with a bag of chips watching Netflix, you know? Wow, amen, I completely agree, that was well said. Well, and that, that is a gift, getting us back to sure. who we were made to be. Um, yeah, I, I am close to somebody right now who's in a war zone and waking up every day thinking, I don't know if I'll be alive today, I don't know if my friends will be alive today, uh, but waking up and thinking I have something to do. This is a good life. I want to do something. I want to fight for justice and for other people and to spend time with them. Yeah. So if, if we all lived our life that way, we'd have more of a sense of purpose than we do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it reminds me just Thursday night, um, I did an evening program at a church here uh, in the Pacific Northwest. And one of the things that I talked about, because I was asked about it in a question, is related to, you know, is there anything hopeful? I mean, your message is so sobering. And, and one of the things that I said was very similarly, uh, very similar to what you just said is that 
that we seem to need challenges and that if we live without them, there's a dysfunction that happens. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things that I see is that as the poop hits the fan, as things get worse, as the challenges are, are, are more pronounced, I think it's going to be, you know, the, the almost redemption of uh, an entire generation, millions of young men, not just in the United States, but in many parts of the world are profoundly addicted to internet gaming or right. internet porn or both. And that's not going to be the case when, they're, when their communities need them. When exactly. their communities need them, they're going to be engaged in meaningful right. work for the first time in right. a long time. Yeah, when, when we had children, my husband and I talked about it and talked about, we realized that children are seen as an expensive luxury. And what does that do to somebody's psyche to grow up as someone who costs their parents money? Now I've got to put you in daycare. Now I've got to find a preschool. Now I've got to you know, buy you a car. Now I've got to pay for college. Phew, now you're gone. That's a terrible way for somebody to grow up. They, they are not integral again to their family's life they are not a, a benefit to the world around them and when people genuinely can contribute not just go to a cube farm and and get a paycheck but when they know that what they're doing is providing food and shelter and inspiration to the people around them um, then they'll be happier they'll be better Amen. Wow. Uh, not only do I agree, but I love Cube Farm. I've never heard that one before. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, Damaris, this is fabulous. Uh, last question related to what's your sense of, you know, what's beyond our control and what still is in our capacity to act and make a difference individually or collectively. Like, in other words, what's your <laughs> sense of what's no longer possible, but what still is possible? I think there is no stopping the onset of sea level rise and many of the other more obvious effects of climate change. I think theoretically it would be possible to mitigate them hugely so that within a few hundred years there would be a, a normal plateau, I'm not a scientist, but from what I've read, uh, a, a new plateau, a new normal that, that we and the other species can start adapting to. I said theoretically though because I don't see it happening yeah. and I am very afraid, I'm sorry, that I think that we're going to be involved in armed conflicts. I think that we are not going to be generous with uh, shrinking supplies. I think uh, there are going to be problems with immigration, uh, war, hunger, uh, injustice, greater disparity, uh, around the world and incomes and opportunities. Um, but that's not the end of the story. And at any moment, we may not be able to change the trajectory of climate change. We, every day that we wait, we get farther into it. But we can certainly change our response to it and our adaptation to it. And that's where it's worth continuing to write and speak on these topics, even as we keep passing another point of no return. Yes. Um, so we, we might not be able to stop climate change, but we could adjust to it a whole lot better than we are. Yeah, yeah. Well, well I actually just thought of a, a, a last, last question, which is what would you say to a young person? I mean, you work with children, mm -hmm. you work with students, you know, what, so what, what would be your sort of core encouragement to a young person and what would be your core encouragement to someone in their retirement years? 
Well, actually, I was approached by a college student last week, and I, my post on Friday is going to be talking about my conversation with him because he kind of asked a similar question. And uh, there are a lot of different things that, that I thought about um, and that I spoke about, but the, I don't want to sound trivial because I don't mean this to sound trivial. But what I'd say to both a young person and an old per person is it is more fun to live the way I'm saying. It is more fun to spend time with people, to be closely related to the land, to know your limits and to enjoy life within them and not be hounded on the, the treadmill of modern life. Um, so I like what John Michael Greer says, collapse now and beat the rush yes, <laughs> about exactly. you know, leading a simple life, uh, pulling back our, our impact on climate change. And I don't wanna paint that as suffering and misery, it's gonna be more fun than sitting at the computer, gaining weight and having high blood pressure. <laughs> I'm sitting at a computer right now, but you know what I mean. <laughs> I do, I do. And I align with that very deeply. Well, Damaris, thank you so much. Any final things you'd like to say? Uh, I think you covered the questions that I prepared for, so that's good. But I really appreciate this, Michael. I'm, I'm thrilled with the project and I hope it has has the impact that you hope, and in fact, a bigger impact than you may be hoping for. So, yeah, thanks. Yeah, I, it's one of those things that's a, a labor of love, in that you know, Connie and I are just doing this because we're passionate about doing it, yeah. uh, not making us any money. But I'm establishing a deeper sense of collegiality and a growing network of of friends in this larger movement, which is real wealth to my mind. It is, and, uh, I agree. and so, however, it ripples out and makes a difference in people's lives this is this is what i feel called to do to use religious language this is what i feel sure. god reality life calling me to do and it's it's so nourishing to have these conversations and to for me to learn uh as well as to share and then whoever's you know whatever the whatever person is listening to this or watching this uh my prayer my hope my desire is that mm -hmm. you uh, uh is that they benefit from whatever was shared. So thank well, you. Well, I so too. Yeah. Thank you for listening. For the videos of all 75 of my post-doom conversations, as well as other post-doom resources, visit postdoom.com.